This is a podcast for Functional Ecology, a British Ecological Society publication. Okay. So I'm uh, Ken Thompson. I'm one of the senior editors of Functional Ecology. And I'm talking to Hal Halverson about his paper in the journal called Periphytic Algae Decouple Fungal Activity from Leaf Litter Decomp via Negative Priming. And that paper was shortlisted, is shortlisted for um, the Haldane Prize in the journal, which is the annual prize we give uh, for a paper by a young researcher. So uh, uh, good afternoon or, or good morning where you are, Hal. Good morning. Now, um, let's kick things off by asking you if you can just briefly tell us what you were trying to do in the, and, and roughly what you did and and what you found and 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 do your best to keep it simple because i know i know what you did was actually really quite complicated yes no problem so in this paper i looked at how light affects the decomposition of leaf litter and specifically how light affects microbial colonization of the leaf litter including the activity of heterotrophs like bacteria and fungi and how that compares when algae are present or not on the decomposing leaves and one of the parts of the study that were really interesting to me as well was comparing different types of leaf because we know that different leaves decompose at different rates. And so the one question is, for example, how do algae influence decomposition of different types of leaves? And I conducted this study in an experimental setting in experimental flumes. And one of the major findings that came out of this is that algae directly stimulate fungi. They stimulate fungal growth and production. But counterintuitively, on both types of leaf species, I saw that algae actually decrease the accumulation of fungal biomass. And this fungal biomass would be invested into structures like mycelia that would be associated with decomposition. And what's also interesting is this was associated with faster breakdown of leaf litter in the dark as well. And this is where the decoupling comes in, is this is the sense that algae stimulate fungi, but they decouple the activity of those fungi from their fundamental uh, function, which is decomposing leaves. Okay. So this is, this is really unexpected. Like it, I remember when I first read your paper, when it was first submitted, I, I, was, I was surprised because it, it seems very counterintuitive. The algae, the algae are are stimulating the fungi, the fungi, the fungi are growing faster uh, and fungi break things down. That's what they do. Mm -hmm. But the rate of decomposition of these leaves is actually reduced in the light. Correct. Yeah. So, so you, so algae, algae, algae increased the rate of growth of the fungi. Yeah. I'm right about that. But That's not correct. the actual fungal biomass, not actually more hyphae. So what's correct. that? That doesn't. That sounds really weird. What's going on there? Yes. So the theory that we have for how this could happen is what's called preferential substrate use. The idea being that fungi can use multiple types of carbon to support their growth, and they can actually shift perhaps flexibly between using different types of carbon. Now, we think of fungi as specializing on more recalcitrant 
compounds like lignin and cellulose that they degrade with enzymatic activity. But it's possible that when there's an alternative pool of carbon available, namely in this case, a pool of labile carbon, uh, simple sugars like glucose, citrate, uh, acetate that are exuded by algae, those are readily used by fungi as well. And algae actually might preferentially use those sources of carbon because they don't require investment into those enzymes that break down more, the more recalcitrant forms of carbon that are found in things like wood and leaf litter. So the thought is if fungi are actively growing in the presence of algae, they can flip to using those labile sources of carbon from the algae instead of using or maybe in addition to using the carbon that's in the leaf litter itself. And that's what explains uh, the shift where we see slower decomposition in the presence of algae. Okay, so breaking down leaves is, is basically hard work. And uh, if, if, if the fungi have the option of an easier life, um, they take it. So, um, the, and you call this negative priming. Yeah, that's, that's, that's the name you've given right. to this. Mm -hmm. um, but not everyone who does this kind of work finds negative priming, do they? I mean, there are examples in the literature of, of positive priming. In fact, I think even I think you've published work that found positive priming. So why is yes. why is priming sometimes positive, sometimes negative? That's a great question, and it's a question that a lot of the research that I'm doing now and that collaborators and other colleagues around the world are conducting right now is to better understand why do we see positive or negative priming under different scenarios. And a lot of the inspiration for this work really comes originally from terrestrial systems, uh, specifically soils, because there's a lot of great research looking at carbon sto storage and carbon cycling within soils. And that research has documented both positive and negative priming as well. And so the thought is maybe there's fundamental shared constraints that shape whether priming will be positive or negative. In the case of aquatic environments, I think a lot of research suggests the prevailing factor is the availability of dissolved nutrients like nitrogen and phosphorus within the water column. And the reason is that those nutrients control the activity of not only the algae, which we think of as the primary stimulant or driver of the priming effect, but they also control the ability of heterotrophs to grow as well. So for example, there's research that suggests, I, conduct, I conducted a meta-analysis uh, that looked at whether nitrogen to phosphorus ratios might uh, relate to this because uh, you expect that nitrogen to phosphorus ratios might control whether organisms have enough nitrogen or phosphorus and that they might, for example, be able to use nitrogen to produce the enzymes to degrade the organic matter. And if there's not enough nitrogen around, then they can't produce those enzymes in the first place. And that might also actually encourage this negative priming scenario, because if there's not enough nitrogen and there's plentiful carbon, you might switch your source of carbon doubly so because you can't produce those enzymes that you need to degrade the underlying organic matter. Uh, the other, just two other factors that I think are at play here that there's research that's going on towards this is, of course, the role of temperature in influencing the priming effect. For example, if we see the priming effect flip at higher or lower temperatures, 
and also the role of light availability because it could be that is there a certain amount of light that facilitates a negative priming scenario or maybe under low light set settings we see more of the positive priming scenario okay so light light's important in the kinds of systems you work on because you're you're looking at water uh, so there's at least some light even if it's a bit shady um, but light's not a factor in soil, I'm assuming? True. Uh, well, this is a very good question. So in the case of the soil, the, the source of the labile carbon would be from we, prevailing would be from plant roots. So in that case, the amount of light that plants are receiving, uh, for example, maybe the place of the plant within the forest canopy, uh, that could influence the, a pool of carbon that's available within the soil that could stimulate heterotrophs. Ah, okay. So light is still important in soil, but it's it's slightly indirect. It's it's carbon coming from the plants, and and that depends on how much light they have. Okay. So this this is uh, this is this is yeah. I I'm starting to see I'm starting to see the bigger picture here. Um, and how does all this how does all this affect the 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 way the ecosystem works? How does this affect? I mean, carbon sequestration. For example, because um, presumably if, um, if all these leaves are not being broken down so quickly, then there's more leaves hanging around in the, in the, in the streams building up. Is that, is that right? That's a great question too. And so the, the thought is, well, if we think of leaf litter as it decomposes, of course, is a source of carbon dioxide into the environment. And that's a critical function in stream ecosystems and wetlands and lakes. But one of the thoughts here is that if algae reduce that decomposition rate, that would suggest leaves aren't as big of a source of carbon into the environment, into the atmosphere. Uh, and this might partly explain, for example, why we see a high rates of carbon storage and burial within well-lit aquatic ecosystems like ponds and wetlands and lake littoral zones where there's a lot of light and there's also a lot of decomposing organic matter. And if the algae suppress the decomposition of that organic matter, that could facilitate carbon storage. When you think about the role of algae within uh, decomposition and within the, the food web though, the other really interesting component to this is that algae might allow leaf litter and other forms of organic matter to play roles in the food web for a longer period of time. Because if you think about when, as leaves decompose, uh, when they're decomposed by fungi and bacteria, that source of energy is no longer available to the food web long-term. And so if we see that the leaf litter sticks around longer because it's decomposing less in the presence of algae, that means that that leaf litter is available to support the food web, for example, supporting detritivores or shredders that feed on the leaf litter, uh, or also supporting grazers or scrapers that feed on that paraphyton that grows on the leaves, almost as if the leaf litter shifts from being a source of just carbon fueling heterotrophy to being a source of carbon that fuels uh, certainly as a surface, it fuels the algae to grow on the surface, but also it fuels the detritivores and the herbivores that might feed on that biofilm that grows on the leaves. Okay, so there's there's actually a lot going on here, isn't there? Because the the leaves, if the if there's more leaves um, hanging around for longer, um, because of this negative priming effect, um, that's actually more surface 
for the algae to grow on. So in a sense, this is all, there's a bit of positive feedback going on here, isn't it? Yes, and there's actually some interesting evolutionary questions at play here as well, because a question comes up of, uh, are algae themselves going to benefit from growing on leaf litter versus if they were growing on, uh, for example, a more solid substrate that's inert, like uh, a rock or a cobble? Um, and this, that's also at play for the fungi and the bacteria. So when the fungi are growing in the presence of these algae, how does that affect their fitness as well? And the thought is if the leaf litter sticks around for longer, maybe that allows the whole life history to be completed within that time frame. So algae can maybe survive longer before the, their substrate disappears if they suppress the decomposition of that substrate. Okay. No, that's really, really interesting. And I, I'm sure this is, I mean, this is a really great piece of work, but it, I'm sure it suggests a whole bunch of questions that you don't know the answer to yet and that you'd like to work on and that need answering. Can you tell us a bit about what they might be? Yes. I'm very interested, uh, for one, that research that's coming out of this is what factors determine the strength of the priming effect and also what factors control the mechanisms of the priming effect. One of the questions that comes up in my manuscript uh, that we're talking about is the role that carbon flows within the microbial consortium play in determining the strength of the priming effect. And there's actually very little work that's used tracers to examine this. And there's a lot of potential for us to use stable isotope tracers or radioactive tracers to understand the different pools of carbon that support the heterotrophy under different regimes of light or algal uh, biomass. And so those carbon flows can be resolved by some of these more advanced techniques, such as stable isotope probing. And that could help us better understand preferential substrate use. When those fungi shift the types of carbon that, that they use, we could actually trace that carbon source. So I've, I have research that's going on to address that question. And I think there's also a lot of potential to address those food, that food web significance. Uh, for example, looking at how both factors of algae growing on the leaf litter and also the amount of leaf litter within an ecosystem, because algae directly influence that, can in turn affect long-term energy flow and nutrient acquisition by primary consumers. So for example, detritivores and herbivores that feed on the leaf litter itself. Okay. So there's, there's quite a parallel here with, with the, the way that people have been approaching um, soil ecology in recent years, yes? Using, using tracers and asking interesting questions about where nutrients and carbon are actually going through the food web. This is very similar. It is indeed. And it's interesting because the work that we did for this paper used tracers as well, but they didn't use them in the way that I think would be a bit more powerful. We had to use tracers to quantify microbial activity like fungal production rates. We use radioactive tracers. But the value of a tracer that's more long term, so for example, if you could label the leaf litter itself, uh, or if you could label the form of, of carbon, the labile carbon that's exuded by the algae, that would provide that uh, sense of what's supporting heterotrophy. And if you have some sort of uh, identifier tag, such as specific fatty acids or specific uh, compounds within the microbial consortia, then that would allow you to 
directly connect the carbon from one source into the sink where it's used uh, long term, which would allow us to resolve carbon flows in a way that this paper didn't allow us to. Yeah. So lots and lots of really interesting questions come out of this work and you're and you're busy you're busy trying to answer some of them. That's right. Well, that's great. It's been it's been really good talking to you, Hal, and I and I really hope that when you have some of this uh, some of this new work sorted out and you have the you have more you can tell us more about these carbon and nutrient flows that uh, that we'll see more of your work submitted to uh, to functional ecology. I love that. It's been great talking with you, Ken. Okay. It's been great. Thank you very much. Take care.